Yo, what up, kiddo? Not much. You know we outside. Yeah, we are. That's how we roll right here on the Humane Roundup. Cool. It's the Humane Roundup. What's that? A podcast about dogs and cats. No other animals or case studies? Of course, kiddo. I'm just being funny. Yeah, you are funny and a little slow. Didn't you say that sharks have bones? Yeah, I did because of their teeth. They're not bones. Goodness grief. We keep it humane, and that's a fact. This is daddy-daughter time, and that's a wrap. There's one last thing that we always say. Thanks Thanks for for listening, listening and keep it humane, man. And cut. Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast with your host who's eating breakfast. (laughs) Ashley Bishop. (laughs) And Daniel Ettinger. Good morning, Bishop. Good morning. I got my tea, so I mean, we're equal. Yeah, I got my coffee, too. Good. What are you snacking on? Uh, a wrap, a breakfast burrito wrap. Speaking of wrap, you didn't hear it yet, but it's <laughs> it's there. This kid wrap, uh, I might have to do one every week. It's so fun. Do, so who came up with it? You were I mean, the kid. We do, We both wrote it, and she called me out. It's pretty, pretty, pretty fantastic. I want to see your kid roast you. Oh, every day. But like... You know how they do the rap battles when they roast yeah. people? You and your daughter need to do one. Okay. Maybe we'll do a live one. There you go. Anyway, we got a good show today. We have, um, we're going to talk about some social stuff, social work stuff. I can't talk this morning. What's new mm-hmm. uh, here in a little bit. And it makes me think, you know, when I worked in the big city, and actually we have it in our new county, uh, we have like a what's called a smart team, or we had technicians where they would ride with, you know, law enforcement officers and then... Mm-hmm. If someone was maybe having a episode, if you will, or just not seem didn't seem right, uh, we could call and ask for that technician, and they'd come out and kind of assess the person on scene to see if you know do they need hospitalization, do they need any other resources, what what's going on, etc. Do you have anything like that? We up do there, yeah, we do, um, and I work pretty closely with them because it, you know we start seeing hoarding or things like that and or they the other part is you know when people go into a hospital setting and they leave their animals behind because they've got nobody to take care of them Mm. Um, so I work very closely with them and contacting who we need to to get housing for the animals and stuff that's good that's really good you know we've had several cases where they've been out on scene and I think over time their profession will continue to evolve. But the area that I really was surprised that they weren't as familiar with was hoarding Uh, and hoard, you know, hoarding is part of the DSM. Yep. And, and that is the, Oh, Bishop, what does DSM stand for? The, the, (laughs) I know what it is, but um, I can't think of, it's the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. There you go. That's what it is. And, and we're it's on, five. We're on the fifth edition. Yes. Uh, but hoarding was added in 2013, I I believe. Now, now I'm just shooting from the hip there. But uh, it just surprised me when we had those situations. You know, I'd call them out. And uh, I, I don't think they understood necessarily the magnitude of it and the recidivism mm-hmm. without intervention, et cetera. So I'm really excited to hear from our guest here in a few minutes about, you know, what they do in those those situations. I'm really lucky that um, our kind of our social work guy um, 
actually has a friend who is a hoarder. Oh, wow. So he also has a lot of firsthand knowledge um, on that. So we always discuss that. That's awesome. You know, just having that relatability, right? Because it, it comes down to not really being overly enforcing and aggressive in those situations, but being able to relate in that situation and how to provide the right resources, et cetera. Do you guys only have it for the mental health aspect? We are actually, our department is working towards also bringing in a social worker for the homeless community. Oh, wow. And I'm um, actually, my best friend applied for that. So I'm really hoping if she gets it, I know she will work very closely. She's worked in a different county for me and has already been asking me for help and other things she's doing. So I'm hoping I'll be able to work very closely with this person as well. That's cool. You know, I don't know enough about my current county just because I'm so new. Uh, And also just based on our demographics, we don't have a large population of people experiencing homelessness. Now Mm. in Denver, that was a different story. And I, I feel like they were out there a lot with the encampments, uh, just, you know, asking questions, questions, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, I, again, I, I don't know specifically now, but in Denver, they were definitely more present because it, the population was just huge. It's unreal how big it is. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like that's an equal area that needs to be because the number of people that, you know, can't get veterinary care because they're homeless. They, the number of times that I get people that are calling because, Oh, this person is out and, you know, with a sign saying that they're homeless and they've got their dog with them, Mm -hmm. which is no, no issue. A lot of these dogs are in great shape. Yes. And, and this one actually is, it's gotten to the point where I've just kind of been like, yep, I know who it is. I'm not going out there. Dog is fine. Cause it just angers him every time I come in anyway, he doesn't like me. Well, and it's projecting, right? So people think that just because somebody is experiencing homelessness, that they can't provide for their animal. And the truth is like, sure, they have their struggles, but at the end of the day, like that's, that's the first thing that they, they'll feed, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. feed the dog before they feed the human. Uh, they're going to feed, you know, um, or they're going to, you know, provide it whatever it really needs that they can. I mean, sure. Veterinary services may be difficult and we can find out more here in a second from our guests, what they do in in Oregon. But at the end of the day, you know, I I think it's, we can't just judge it. I guess judge a book by its cover, right? Like it's not fair to just say, well, that person doesn't have a house, but they have a dog and they shouldn't have a dog. And so we get people that obviously judge in those situations and then want us to, to take the animal away with no probable cause. It's kind of stupid. Right. And, you know, sometimes that animal is the only thing keeping that person going. Yep. Now, with that being said, have there been times where I'm like, yeah, this person really needs to give this animal up. They truly can't. Whether the animal appears to be healthy or not, um, you know, we had one person who was homeless babysitting a dog, but the dog got away from him. And... It's like, okay, you clearly are not, and then didn't go looking for it on top of it. Mm. Um, So yeah, you can't care for your dog or the cats that are being kept in small cat crates, you know? Yeah, I get that. 
So there, there is finding that fine line of, okay, no, this is too much for you. We have resources available that we can offer you, but you can't do it if you have an animal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so finding a tactful way to try to communicate with these people and say, Hey, listen, we can get you this help, but I need you to let me try to find a new home for your pet. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so those are those are also conversations I do have. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all been there in that aspect or we'll hold the animal until they can, you know, not not indefinitely, clearly, but like there's a short short term hold period. And if they can get back on their feet, great. If not, then they understand that that animal may be become the property of the impounding agency. So I would be interested to hear everybody's thoughts on that one, because although I can do it. Um, my city is charged a fee from the shelter to do it because that falls under our help for cause. Okay. And so, you know, it's $76 the first day, $16 every day after that okay. per animal. They don't even do like they don't waive like the first few days or anything. Mm-mm. Dang. And, well, and, but at the same time, I don't think that that's to the fault of the shelter. They're still putting in their time, their energy, their resources, yeah, and I they're full. It. I get it. I, I, I do. I, I just think it's probably based on policy and management, etc. I think having a grace period may be helpful, though. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's get our guest on just because it's fun to do, and this is what we're talking about today. <laughs> let's introduce Kelly Bremkin. She is a veterinary social worker. And she's with Oregon Humane Society. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me today. I am thrilled to be here and I'm already so excited about the conversation. You guys are speaking to things like so near and dear to my heart, like all the nuances that impact a pet owner, like all of the things that I love to talk about. So I'm thrilled to be here. Well, and we're great. We're really grateful to have you. And if you don't mind, I think just for our listeners who may not know, a, what's a, what's, what is a veterinary social worker? And then how did you get into it? What's your background on that? Yeah. So veterinary social work, don't be upset if you don't, if you've never heard of it. So um, it's a specialized area where a social worker is really educated on that human animal bond and all the challenges that can arise with dealing with that. And I always like to tell people that my real job is just to improve the life of a person so that I can improve the life of their pet. And I, I have about yikes, 20 years experience in animal welfare, doing lots of different jobs. And then about four years ago, I decided that a lot of the work I was doing was very similar to my friends who were doing social work. And then I found a program with the University of Tennessee, and they offer you a master's in social work, as well as being certified for veterinary social work. So many people know social workers and social workers do tons of different jobs, right? They work for child protection agencies, governmental agencies, they work in schools, they work in um, care facilities for the elderly. And this is just another type of social work. And it's really, really focusing on the ways that we interact with animals and how they enrich our lives, but also some of those problems that are created with that bond. And then there are lots of different ways you can work in veterinary social work. Um, Some people work academically, they work with the next class of social workers or veterinary students. Some work in an, in an emergency setting or a specialty clinic where we're helping people deal with a diagnosis of a terminal illness for their pet or pet loss and grief. 
And then some of us, just a small handful, work in animal shelters. So I work at the Oregon Humane Society. I, there's someone who works in San Francisco. There's a wonderful social worker in Maui. And so we actually are focused on helping people and pets stay together. So offering resources like what you were talking about, access to veterinary care, stable housing, food supplies. Um, and then and then we also work with the staff because, as you all know, the work is hard. The work can be difficult. And so we kind of split our time, some of us, between staff and the public. I want to, I want to get to that staff later, but I think Bishop had a question. Yeah, I did. Um, so obviously, if... Many of our listeners probably have never heard of this before. It's pro not something that is very out there um, as far as a veterinary social worker. Did you have to kind of create the position or was it there? Oh, goodness, I did have to create it. And most of us have had to create it. Um, the term veterinary social work and the idea has been around since the early 2000s. Dr. Elizabeth Strand at UT sort of coined that phrase, but it was a little bit of a slow ramp up. Now... Okay. We think there are hundreds of us, but it's we're just now getting a professional organization and figuring out where we all work. Um, but at the Oregon Humane Society, I was so fortunate that the director of their medical services, Dr. Steve Kotchis, had worked at Dove Lewis in Portland, which is an emergency clinic that had a veterinary social worker. And so he saw the benefit and knew what it could do. And he championed our executive leadership team to allow me to do my internship to complete my master's degree there. And then also to then hire me in that official capacity. But it is a brand new role and I've only been there about a year. If if somebody had questions, they wanted to, you know, they, they listen to this episode and they're like, hey, I need to do this. I need to bring this to my community. Where is the first place that they need to reach out to? Where can they find some information on it? I think that the University of Tennessee's website for veterinary social work is the best place to start because they understand this is a new field and there are lots of questions and they've got some documents that will help you figure out, is this the right fit for you? What does this person do? How does it fit into your organization? And then I would always say that reaching out to a veterinary social worker in your community or someone who does this work is great to figure out how the program got started. Okay. It, it really seems like this will be the wave of the future when we talk about, you know, providing resources. I always use this term and Bishop, I don't know if we brought, if we, if we brought this up on the show or if I heard it somebody somewhere else, but progressive enforcement, it's like my yeah. new favorite thing to say. I don't know why. Uh, just an episode or two ago, I think we talked about it. So, yeah. And so from the idea of, you know, how do we come into a situation? I see too many, or I, I should say, I've seen too many officers. And it, it seems like sometimes it's a lot of the newer ones that want to prove themselves come into a situation where they just want to write tickets for everything. And I'm like, just chill. Like, that's not necessary when we have other options and resources, especially, look, if it's an egregious crime against an animal, somebody intentionally beat the crap or killed an animal or whatever, I get it. Like, they should go to jail for a little bit until we figure out the next steps. You know, thankfully here in Colorado, we have mental health evaluation and treatment uh, upon sentencing of cruelty like that, but not everywhere does. And so it's just really figuring out those next steps. As, I, as I'm really trying to explain though, and Kelly helped me out here, how do we get this in every agency? How do we get it to every state where a veterinary social worker is available to help? That's a great question. And I think that it begins with us being vocal about 
the need for it, and also relying on our county or our state because many jurisdictions are already offering this sort of support to their police force, to their sheriffs. So I think you all mentioned in the intro that there are social workers embedded within your within your organizations that you work with. And so being able to ask and utilize those resources as they're already set out and then making this a more nuanced piece, I think is the beginning. I know in Seattle, down in Eugene, out in the Pacific Northwest, we've got a longstanding history of social workers being able to go out with um, with other law enforcement organizations being able to be there as a resource. And I think that that's not new. It's just newer to think we would also do that for the animal cases that were going on. Okay. Yeah. But I do think also talking about the work is important, talking about how hard the work can be and the things that you're seeing, not in a way where we're trauma sliming people and giving them gory details they don't need, but in the way where we're talking about, hey, when I'm on a call and I know that someone just needs access to resources, data is important. Track those things. How do we know that that's happening? What what are we referring to? What agencies do we partner with? These are the ways that we know. I mean, I mean, social work is in fact based on empirical data, scientific studies. And so being able to show the data of what you're referring to, who are you referring to, what these services that are needed are, what they're enabling you to do. Because the, the job that I really want for veterinary social work in an animal welfare setting is to preserve that human animal bond. I think for a long time in animal welfare, we've been working towards this idea that it's not that I don't want to help you, but I certainly want you to keep your pet because that's a strength in most people's lives. It I think be- every shelter right now wants people to keep their pet. <laughs> right now, I don't want any of your animals, okay? Just please keep everything. Uh, but it, it's true, I, I, especially if you are, you're experiencing homelessness for the first time and you have a, a 15-year-old cat who's always lived with you, or you've got chronic homelessness and you have a dog who's always lived with you in a camping or an encampment setting. Those are not great candidates for adoption at a shelter. Sure, we can do it, but it's a lot of stress on that pet. So is there a way for me to preserve that bond, offer you services so that you are able to stay with that pet for its entirety, for its entire life? I I mean, we've been moving towards that in animal welfare for a while now, and this is just veterinary social work. I see is the next step in linking those human services to keep that going. When you talk about your availability for the field, Mm -hmm. also talk about how you interact with the shelter itself. So in my opinion, the field's still kind of behind in some of the growth areas of what shelters have done probably over the last 10 to 15 years. It's, It's really impacted the change in their perception in the community for a long time we had dog pounds and now we have you know animal shelters animal resource centers etc but we still have the dog catcher and my goal and one of my you know one of my career goals is is to really help change that image of that dog catcher but how do you work in the shelter setting too are you often like going up front and at some point, I want to talk about how you're available for staff, but just more so how you operate in the aspect of if someone comes in with a situation, are you asked to come up and chat? Like, how does that work? Yes, I am. And so I spend about, I work five days a week and I spend three days in the shelter. And I'm technically right now part of our shelter operations team. We are currently opening a veterinary community hospital in Portland, Oregon. And that will be wonderful. And my job will shift a little bit with that. 
but currently I'm part of the admissions team. And so our customer care team, our admissions team, they have access to great resources. We've got specialists on staff who keep a resource list and they know who to call and what services you can access. So they offer those services to people who call either to surrender an animal or to ask for help. But if what the person needs is a little above that list or our staff realizes that this problem is not an animal problem, this is a person problem, like I'm losing my housing or I'm currently experiencing homelessness, those get referred to me through our system. We have a computer system and those get referred to me. So I, I on average carry about 12 to 15 open cases at any time where I'm currently working. And those could be like a, a breadth of, of issues, right? It could be. I'm fleeing domestic violence and I don't know where to go that will accept my pet. Okay, great. I have a list for that. I can talk to some case managers, get you in contact with the right people, or we can help you find a, a temporary foster for that pet while you're fleeing that environment. Um, I am experiencing homelessness and my dog needs emergency surgery. Where can I go? Who do I ask? What do I do? So also my job is to ask that person, are you being fully supported right now? What services are you in need of? Can I make a referral for you? Can I get you a bus pass from our organization to get here to get vet care? Can we get you that bus pass to use to get to the clearinghouse for domestic violence to file your restraining order? How can we assist you so that this pet's life is easier? So those get referred to me and I work on those on a regular basis. And that also does require me to just be available to run up to the front for someone who's having a moment or needs assistance. Um, and then also I, I work with our field, um, in Portland at the Oregon Humane Society, we have humane law enforcement officers and our humane law enforcement officers are in the field quite a bit and they will refer cases to me in the same way. And those can be so varied. It can be going out on a hoarding case. It can be going out on a call with one of our, um, officers to help them offer resources to, to an owner. It can be a lot. It can look a lot of different ways. I mean, is it easier if I give examples of how they look or what do you think? Do you have questions about it? I'm, yeah, I do. Tons, tons of questions. Yeah. So Bishop. yeah, maybe give us, give us just what some of that looks like. Yeah. So for example, um, in the last year, um, one of our officers got a call from a neighborhood association that had concerns about its resident and the way that she was walking her dog. The dog seemed to be in some pain. The way she was walking, it didn't didn't she didn't seem to notice the pain or was being physically abusive to the dog. That was the concern. But upon initial contact, that officer had some concerns about this person's memory and just the the living conditions. So so they decided to go out to this location, as you do. And I went with uh, because that was two sets of eyes on the problem, as well as what you know, just coming from a mental health perspective. When we got out there, those concerns over memory with that initial contact, those were correct. And so while this officer was assessing the animal and speaking to this client, I was also observing what was happening, um, this person's ability to remember what was being said, looking around the house and noticing that everything was labeled. Um, photos of the family were labeled as this is your daughter, you eat lunch at noon, things that just were great keys that there were problems with memory or dementia. And then this officer and I reached out to the family together to say, we have concerns. This was already an ongoing dynamic in this family. They were caregivers. This client was still living alone. So it was me in a clinical setting telling them, 
the support that you're currently offering is no longer working. And here's what we see. And here's what I saw. And here's some more services for y'all to access so that, so that you can either move to the next step for care. And then it was the officer who said, and here's what we need from you to prove that this pet is definitely being taken care of and that there are caregivers involved besides just this client. So I think that's a good example of using my mental health skills or my clinician skills to help that officer, but also to take that, that officer talking about the pet was wonderful, but then I got to come in and talk about resources, which then freed up our officer to move on to the next case. Because I'm sure, as you know, there is no shortage of cases. <laughs> so being able to free up your time and also absorb from that family what that experience is. That family does not want to hear that things aren't going well, that the plan they currently have in place is not working. And so having me be able to do that because I'm trained to talk to them in that way, I think also alleviates the stress and pressure from that officer having to do that or having that officer not know the resources and have to look for the resources or make those contacts before they follow up. I already Kelly, have those contacts. Yeah, Kelly, I have a couple questions about what it just looks like. I, I'm a visual person. So yes. I roll up to the scene. Are you riding shotgun? Are you in the car, the truck with the officer? Sometimes. If I know we're going out on something like hoarding or if I know we're going on a case like that, yes. But sometimes you're already there and you can contact me and I may or may not be able to come out. So, okay, let's say you roll up with the officer. Mm -hmm. What do you typically, this is Jake from State Farm. What are you wearing? <laughs> like Jake from State Farm in, um, in an Oregon Humane Society, non-officer looking clothes. I'm, okay. really, I'm really in plain clothes, as okay. I think y'all might call it. Um, and so I, I do have my badge on. I do have my name tag on. And I'm clearly I'm clearly there with an officer. But I'm when not you say badge, either. are you talking about like your lanyard badge? Or yeah, do my you lanyard have... badge. Yeah, girl, they don't give me a badge. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's continue to paint the scene. Now we walk up to the door. The officer's like, hey, I'm so-and-so with Oregon Humane. This is Miss uh, Breckman. Or Kelly, like, how do they introduce you? What's next? They, they usually say, you know, I'm officer. If, if it was you and I, you're out there, you would give your spiel of who you are. And then okay. they would say, this is my coworker, Kelly. She's a, a social worker. Can we oh, ask cool. her? Can okay. we talk? And then that person usually has several questions about why a social worker is there. Okay. <laughs> and I try to answer those right away and just be very transparent that I'm a mental health professional and I'm here as a clinician to offer support. That's my spiel when I usually go in. Okay. So you, you basically extend the arm like, Hey, we're, we're a, an additional resource to this officer here. That's trying to help. Correct. Correct. Okay. And I usually try to establish rapport right away. I have to admit our humane law enforcement officers are all, all come from either like the Portland police department or highway patrol. I mean, they have a law enforcement career usually before. And Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And so they, um, they have quite a presence in the room, but they're also very caring and they are very quick to establish rapport. They're very good at it. And so usually I am taking like the, the second lead there. I'm not in any, I'm not really in charge there. That's their, that's their scene. That's their idea. That's what we're there for is what they're investigating. And I'm just there as a resource. You know, so many questions and we have uh, <laughs> limited time. Well, we do. And, and Bishop, I don't mean to jump in, but no, go for it. Uh, this, the website, if you go to vetsocialwork.utk.edu, again, vetsocialwork.utk.edu, holy moly guacamole. Like there is so much good stuff, right? Just right on the front page. I haven't even drilled down yet. And I just, I think this is a wave of the future and 
anyone that's listening that's a, that may have an idea of like, well, I don't know. I think you need to wake up, truthfully. And I I don't mean that to be like rude, but in the in the current state that we're in, just as a as a society where, you know, people need help. I, I used to work with this guy and he would always say, Well, if they can't afford vet care, they don't deserve to have a fucking dog. <laughs> we uh, all know those people. We all know that person in our office. Right. And I mean, I think he meant well. And truthfully, he was actually pretty empathetic when you saw him out in the field. But man, did he put on a front when he was in there just trying to talk his talk. But at the end of the day, it's like, look, he, here's the thing we don't often realize or recognize. When you knock on someone's door, you have no idea what the last 24 hours, 36 hours, one year, two years, three years, four years have been like for that person. Mm-hmm. All you know is you're there to address a situation. Mm-hmm. And so bringing an empathetic approach and trying to be relatable with opportunity of resources, hey, you know, somebody could have got laid off that day or their mother could have died or who knows, a child could have died. And so just being able to listen. And I think having someone like you in that situation to provide those resources are really important. And it also, I think it, how do I say this the right way? I think it encourages whoever you're out there with to think in a way that maybe they haven't thought before. I agree with you. And I think that's such a great point. There's so much nuance to the work that you do, to the work that we do at the shelter every situation is different. And while there are some commonalities and we can track data in groups and sets, there are lots of different stories and those stories are so varied. And so I I really encourage everybody, like this idea that we're extending grace to people sort of first is what we go with when I go out. I always tell people, hey, listen, I... I don't have a reason not to believe someone when they tell me something. And also I extend a lot of grace. That's also, you got to watch me. I'll give everything away for free. Those are the things I tell people when we go out. (laughs) I'm like, what do you need this? Give it to them, give it to them. Um, And so I, I just extending that grace, Daniel, like you're saying is so important because I have no idea what's going on in someone's life. And you, when I'm seeing someone in the admissions department at a shelter, obviously I'm probably not seeing them on their best day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we, when I also assist officers going out on cases like a hoarding case, um, it's, it's this idea that I can help you plan for this event. And also it's not that I'm trying to quote run interference with a client, but how great would it be if you had a mental health professional with you on the day of a seizure or on the day of an event where you're taking animals, even if they've been surrendered, that someone with a mental health training and background can sit and talk to that person exclusively so that you can do the other things for the animals that are needed. Yeah. That to me is huge because as much as sometimes we want to try to say the right thing, Mm -hmm. we're also so, I don't know about you, Dan, but in some of those cases you get so amped up that it's very easy to say the wrong thing. Or just say it the wrong way. Absolutely. Tone is a huge. Yeah. Yeah. And and you don't necessarily do it on purpose, but having somebody that is able to handle, you know, you get in there and probably give them the very basics that you legally have to. Hey, we're here. Here's the warrant. We have to remove whatever. 
please go talk to Kelly. That would be that would be fantastic. <laughs> and and listen, and the great part about that is also I've already made a plan for this because listen, we knew we were going. We knew what county we were in. I know I'm getting a list of referrals for mental health. I'm also helping that person plan for after we're gone for the day because as much as I believe that hoarding, you know, I heard you guys talk about the DSM and hoarding being recognized as um, an issue. It, it is something where we need to offer them resources. So for example, we went out on a call um, and we seized uh, 100, 150 plus guinea pigs. Oh, good yeah. grief. From a one That's room, squeaking. From a one room yes. apartment. <laughs> <gasps> wow. It was a lot, right? And so, but this person had a great relationship with an animal control officer in that county. And that officer had really built up a relationship with this person over time, with even with offering citations, and basically got them to the point where they agreed to surrender. So it wasn't like a search warrant and a seizure, so that does alleviate some pressure. Um, but I went out for that day, and my plan was, we they introduced me, I sat with this client for the six hours it took us to remove those animals. We made a plan, we talked about what happened, we also made a plan for after the pets had gone, we addressed the grief and the loss that that client was going to feel, but also what were some of the benefits of having these pets gone and what's next, as well as like, for real, we, we have to think about suicide prevention and planning mm -hmm. and then a referral. And then I follow up seven days, 14 days, 30 days later in a, in a scheduled visit and scheduled calls. And I think that also helps alleviate for that animal control officer what did we leave in the wake there, right? Like when you leave and pull away, you're exhausted from the day. But I think for a lot of people, there does something creeps into your mind where you think, boy, I don't know what comes next for that person. And maybe mm -hmm. me being there can alleviate that even just a small bit. Well, and I would like to hope that that would help some of the recidivism as well. We hope so. We've been tracking. So I've been out maybe on four hoarding cases. Um, one of them has a chronic problem that, you know, the frequent fire we're going to see for a while. Um, but the other ones so far, so good, knock on wood, um, have also then established a relationship with me and then they don't see the shelter and then by extension, the humane law enforcement as an adversary or as an enemy. Therefore, they're then reaching out for help. Mm -hmm. So this person that we took the guinea pigs from, they got down to one guinea pig and it went great. And then a, a little while later, they reached back out to the animal control officer and shelter that they were originally in contact with and said, um, I, someone dumped a rabbit in my apartment complex and I brought it home, but I know that I shouldn't keep it. And I want you guys to come get it. Oh, that's awesome. Great. I mean, I, it was celebration all around the office that day because it was this idea that we had built a relationship and we didn't come off as the enemy and we were able to really continue that relationship. And that person turns out is getting the help they need and avoided a lot of prosecution and problems in the later part, right? This is part one of Veterinary Social Work with the Humane Roundup podcast. Tune in next week as we do part two with Kelly Brenkman of Oregon Humane. Thank you, and as always, keep it humane, Maine.